82 millimeter mortar started coming in on us. So like, what, what is that? That's incoming mortar and artillery rounds. We were engaged uh, in a complex ambush from both sides. An enemy force, unknown numbers, engaged both sides of my rear vehicle. So they targeted my rear vehicles with RPGs and uh, heavy machine guns. I was in the lead vehicle. I have never experienced much chaos as I did at that time. As it, I just didn't know what was going on. Hi, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this podcast, The Spear, is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it, a battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. We chose the spear as the name of this podcast to capture two ideas. First, that combat is that unique experience that takes place at the tip of the spear. And second, that in our modern wars, it isn't just combat forces that can find themselves fighting. Any part of our military, any part of the spear, combat or support, can be forced by circumstances to become that sharp fighting end. In this episode, I talked to our own Major John Spencer. He's the Deputy Director of MWI, But in 2003, he was a platoon leader with the 173rd Airborne in northern Iraq. He talks through two separate events from that deployment. First, the very first mission he led his platoon on, and second, a complex ambush conducted by enemy forces against his platoon. They're both great stories of combat in their own right, but he also reflects on some interesting comparisons between the two. A couple notes before we get into the conversation. First, if you haven't yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts, and I would highly recommend it because we've got a couple of upcoming episodes that we're really excited about. And lastly, as always, what you hear on this podcast are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Major John Spencer. Uh, major John Spencer, thanks for thanks for coming in and talking to us. I should note that you're the second Major Spencer we've had on on the Spear. The first one was your wife. Yes, actually, she talked about uh, a firefight in in Baghdad. So, any listeners that haven't heard that one, it's a great episode. So, uh, I'd highly recommend checking it out. Uh, you're going to talk about two separate incidents, correct? Yes, and close you, in time. Can you can you give us a little bit of background? When was it? Where were you? So. I would, they, they both happened during Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. So I was with the 173rd Airborne that uh, conducted an airborne uh, operation jumping into the north part of Iraq, uh, Operation Northern Delay, which was you know, meant to de- basically occupy Iraqi forces in the north so they wouldn't move on Baghdad where you know, our forces were moving strongly to the south. So my unit jumped in, into the north, my brigade did, and I was a platoon leader of an infantry platoon. Uh, I want to talk about the basically the first major combat mission or, that we had, and then another one separated by a few months that was kind of, for me, gives a clear picture of where I was in time and space of that. Okay. The, you said Operation Northern Delay. Can you 
just to kind of give a picture of, of what you were supposed to do, were you jumping in and preventing and, and establishing blocking positions to keep them from moving south, or were you meant to jump in and engage them to essentially keep them occupied? <clears throat> so, uh, you know, originally the 4th ID was supposed to land in Turkey, mm -hmm. um, and based on some diplomatic problems, that didn't happen, so they put in the 173rd. It was called an airborne reinforcement. So your special forces were already on the ground in the north, linked up with... Uh, Kurdish forces in the north. Uh, so my unit was meant to jump in, establish a, a lodgement, and then move south um, to engage Iraqi forces that were still there in the north because they did leave forces back in the north, uh, and to be an overall part of the grander campaign um, on the basically the invasion. Uh, so where did you jump in and, and, and when? So I jumped in in a, a village or town called Bashur, Iraq, way in the north. Uh, it was March 26, 2003, and to all of our surprises, northern Iraq is not Iraq desert that you might think about. And it's more like Colorado, northern mountains with green, wet climate. Um, and it had rained. I think we've also had Major Spencer on uh, another podcast on combat jumps for our MWI podcast. Uh, and he told that story and jumped into knee-deep mud, which is another one that I'd, that I'd recommend if you haven't listened to that. Um, all right, so talk about the, the first, first kind of incident. So, you know, if you, if you read the, if you listened to the one about the jump, you know, once we jumped and assembled uh, in an airborne unit, you know, for the first thing I want to make sure everybody knows that you know, we jumped in and heavy dropped vehicles that are Humvee vehicles, open skin. Um, this is... OF-1 before IADs, so we were riding in open-skinned, uh, just open Humvees with uh, weapons mounts on the top of them. Their vehicles not really meant to, they're not fighting vehicles. So after the jump, we, we, we put both battalions on vehicles and we moved south. Um, following behind, Special Forces and Kurdish Forces were moving heavily towards Kirkuk. Uh, so we moved from where we jumped in the north into Erbil and set up a kind of a, it's not an outpost because we were just in an open field. One of the first missions that we had was um, some of the Iraqi divisions, the 4th and the 16th, had moved south to reinforce Baghdad, and then others were left, did stay in place. So my unit um, was assigned a mission, which was to engage that those infantry units that were dug in a trench line really close to where we were in Orbil, and to escort our battalion artillery close enough to where they could engage into those forces. Um, my company was given the mission to be the very lead of that formation, basically to escort those artillery pieces to where they could fire on the enemy. Um, and I being, I was an um, a infantry PL, but with vehicles. Uh, it was just a, not a motorized, because it was an airborne unit that had been given you know, vehicles. So I had eight Humvees, and I was the kind of the more mobile of the, the platoon. So my company was the lead element of this much larger uh, mission to escort the artillery to where they could fire on the enemy. And then my platoon was the lead of that lead. And my vehicle was the lead of my platoon. So you're the tip of the spear at that I was, point. Yes. Um, is this in Erbil, in the city, or is it outside the city? So we were outside the city. Um, you know, I just happened to find my green notebook for this mission, which really helps my memory. So I, I, I can open up my green book right here and draw the, see the picture that we drew. of. We were just in an open field on the outskirts of Erbil, uh, set up in a tactical similar almost so so talk about that then so you 
you roll out, uh, talk about what your mission is, where you're going, um, and I mean, you said you're 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 going to engage enemy fighters that are there. Yeah. Um, but can you give us some more details about about the location and 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 specifically what that looked like? Yeah. So the unit and I had actually been a part of the a zone reconnaissance to basically to discover the exact location of the enemy before this mission, uh, and then we did, went through a full troop leading procedure, just like I had trained for, you know, I'd been a prior service, so I'd, I'd done troop leading procedures and missions similar to this in JRTC, NTC. So we started a full TLP series, company commander issued a, an op order, I issued the platoon order, we did all the pre-combat checks, and then we marshaled on a road in the middle of this field, had all our vehicles in line, getting ready to move forward. Um, and the plan was to move forward, link up with a special forces element that had already been on the ground and had actually received fire from this um, what was believed to be an infantry battalion plus of Iraqi, you know, these are Iraqi regular army forces, um, with uh, discus, with BRDMs, with mortars. They'd already engaged the special forces of, of recon uh, that week, uh, so we knew that they were active. Um, and my mission um, was going to be to establish a blocking position at the farthest point that we're moving to um, the enemy to get the artillery as close as we could. So the artillery is behind me. My company was meant to establish a blocking position. So that way, if any of the enemy came out of where they were dug in, that we would be the blocking to, in order to allow the artillery uh, to fire. So we moved out of the assembly And one thing I, if I try to picture that basically standing in an open field prior to dusk, because you know this mission happened in the night, we owned the night. My company commander came up to one of my vehicles and basically asked me if I was ready. I was ready. Um, you know, we're all ready. He was just doing this you know, circulation as we were waiting. He walked up to one of, again, because all the vehicles are open, one of the troops in my, in my platoon and asked him, you know, was he ready? And he said, yes, sir. And he said, are you scared? And what sticks with me, because you know, your memory fades, is, is, is his answer was yes. And there was no caveat. It was just, yes, sir, I'm scared. Now, in, in reflection, that seems normal. But to me, it, it didn't. Just because I, that that question of fear wasn't in my mind. It was, I was in, I'd done missions like this in trainings over and over again. I, in combat fear is natural. I, I just hadn't had that feeling. So I, I felt, not that had I done anything wrong, it just surprised me so much that his answer was just straight out yes. Right. All right, so you start, you're rolling out in the dark. Yep. Blackout? Yep, blackout, So which is its own challenge is, we were, you know, these aren't, these are Humvees. And we had, you know, dismounted, what were supposed to be dismounted nods, trying to see through the glass of your windows. Where you have no depth perception. No depth perception. There's, I mean, total blackout, um, especially as we got closer. We kind of moved to a, a midway rally point where I, being a lead vehicle, linked up with the Special Forces. So, I mean, straight out of a movie, a, a bearded guy on the side of a road with his hand out. Um, there was supposed to be a white light as the link up procedures, but... I stopped, he walked up to my vehicle, and I said, company commanders, you know, six vehicles back. Uh, and then we stopped there and waited. Really, what also sticks out to me, because I, I like to study combat fears, that when we did that stop on the other special forces, my platoon sergeant radioed me they had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it, you know, this is the first combat mission, but it would become a trend. And now that I study combat fear, I know it's just his body's response to fear. He had to go find a bathroom every time we were getting ready for a mission. It just sticks out with me. Uh, okay, so you link up with the special forces element, yep. uh, and then what? So then he tells us that you stay on this road for about 
1,500 meters and you'll link up at that four-way intersection, which we knew was where we were setting up our blocking position. So we moved forward and he actually gave me really clear instructions. He said, hey, you're going to go up about 1,000 meters and you're going to go up the you can go up over a irrigation ditch, um, and you're going to go over, and it'll be after that. So you again being pitch black, dark, blacked out nods. Getting over, getting over the irrigation ditch, on a bridge. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, not like a, a large bridge, but um, you know these irrigation ditches are, are very prevalent in the rural Iraq. So there's there's just crossing points. They're not they're not like bridge. You think about they're just crossing points that are you know mud and mud. Um, things that go over the irrigation ditch. Uh, so that's what I was keen for. I was the TC of the lead vehicle. My driver has nods. I have nods. My, my gunner above me ha has nods. And I, we're driving forward to go to that. That's kind of like a, a good signal that we're on the right track. And the, the road kind of veered a little bit. Uh, and then I felt that we were going up over this same, like, okay, we're on track. And my gunner just screams at the top of his lung, which is not tactical. It's very surprising. Stop. Uh, he just, stop. And the driver slams on his brakes. And our lead, I mean, our vehicle front tires were in water because <laughs> we had veered off the road and we were driving into the irrigation ditch. Right. You just, I mean, presumably the road is just a path and, yep. you know, it's flat ground and, and the road is just where people drive. It's not yep. necessarily yeah, it's not, ditches and curbs and yep. what we think of as roads often. Uh, so, okay. So you avoid a close call there, which, which could have been, I mean, yeah, so devastating. I mean, devastating. We, we lost a lot of soldiers to, uh, you know, to rollovers and things like that in irrigation ditches and canals. And, yeah, so and, for and, me, my heart's in my throat. And I talk, you know, again, when I talk about kind of fear, you know, my biggest fear during this mission and most of my mission was fear of failure. So when that vehicle about went into that water, that would have been failure for our my platoon, my unit, to have to deal with that. You know, the, the, the element would have kept moving, but it was just such a near failure moment. Um, you know, stuff happens in war. Friction, you know, happens. So we stop. The three vehicles back figured out how to go up that in the basically embankment that we we're on to get back up on the road and actually go over the bridge. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, so nobody actually outside of my platoon knows that we about <laughs> ruined this big town. Well, that mission. was true until you decided to talk about it on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So then you get across the canal. Yep. And head toward this yep. intersection. So we yeah. We had known, um, so just prior to the mission planning, so you know, we're, we're within 400 meters of the four-way intersection. We had been briefed and I, we planned direct positions where all my vehicles would go. Um, the dismounted soldiers were, this is a company mission, were on five-ton trucks. They knew where they were going to pull off, get down on the ground and face, face out. Um, my two Mark 19 guns had pre-planned targets. So there was a, a Ford Observer that was already on the ground that had eyes on the enemy. Um, we should already pre-planned where their mortars were, uh, where their DISCA or you know, ADA type of very large uh, machine gun was. So my, which is, you know, I don't think happened in any other mission that we did in both my tours. Both my gunners were cleared hot to engage as soon as they pulled into their positions in this four-way intersection. And that's what they did. So both my Mark 19, so their 40-millimeter grenade launching machine guns, basically, so you Imagine grenades on, yeah. on auto. Um, engaged uh, the mortar positions through the FO, which they had verified, uh, within before almost their wheel stopped. And they went through a lot of ammo engaging those targets. Uh, and it was confirmed later that they hit on target immediately uh, and, and stopped mortars um, from engaging us. 
Were those mortars in a position where they could have also engaged the uh, the artillery pieces? Yes. Or okay. Yeah, so that you, was so why you really needed to put them out of commission. That's right. It was so the decisive for the mission for you know armies to talk was us establishing this this traffic control point or it's a battle position. Uh, decisive for my platoon was the you know the elimination or you basically put those things out of commission because they can engage us and the artillery, which is the decisive effort was allow those artillery to shoot onto the enemy. And what about the, you said there was a Dishka position as well? Yeah, so as soon as we, so we knew where the Dishka was and as soon as we opened up on the mortar, the Dishka started firing. But we thought it was kind of funny, you know, things are funny to you, but it was firing in a circle because it didn't know what was going on. You know, the chaos of, they didn't know, they did not plan on us doing what we, were, we had just done, which is um, immediately opened up with so much fire and the artillery at this point is going off. Um, the disc has started firing in a circle. And the only reason we knew that is because, you know, all the tracer rounds. And like, what are they shooting at? <laughs> it's just going in a circle. And that was all funny, well, to do until rounds actually did start coming our way. Um, and, you know, this was, like I said, the first real combat mission where we engaged in an enemy. That's the first time me or anybody that I was deployed with had ever heard that sound of a round close to you. So the classic whip snap of a round um, it's almost so foreign to you that you've been briefed on what it sounds like. And like, what is that? Yeah. Because you're not seeing the, the rounds hit or anything. Like, what is that sound? Like, no, that's, that's rounds passing past your head. And probably the first time you said that this was a, I mean, the process, the planning process and mission execution process, like, entirely replicated what you had done at, yep. uh, at the training centers. Uh, this is the first time that there's something different happens. I mean, you're experiencing, you hear that crack above your head. Yep. I, gotta, I imagine it makes it pretty real pretty quickly. Yeah, and it makes it so foreign. You know, you've been through combat training centers so much. Like like you said, it, all this just seems so natural as in planning and execution. That's all our troop leading procedures. And the, it all fell into place and it just felt so natural. That was something that was unnatural yeah. uh, to even firefighters you get engaged with, with the you know, op four at these training centers. So that you know, while that's happening, my mission as a platoon leader, because I think it's kind of funny, and I do, I do remember it clearly, is from higher up in the battalion, they had given me the kind of the secondary mission to put out uh, wire on the road and signs in Arabic that said "stop, turn around." <laughs> I don't know why they did that. I don't know if they were planning for civilian considerations of this mission. They thought that. You know, I, I also cleared hot to engage any target you know, that poses potential threat to put out Constantino wire across the road and put out signs. So not saying I disobeyed an order. Uh, I, me and my driver got out of our vehicle, cut that off of our hood that was on our vehicle, and threw them into the road. The signs. The signs and the wire. Yeah. It still rolled up. <laughs> and then we got back in our vehicle and waited for, um, you know, waited for what we thought was coming, which was enemy forces coming our way. And... Uh, a truck did come down that road. I couldn't see it. Um, the platoon on my left could see it, so that which I don't know how they did it, but this our 60 millimeter mortars internal um, were able to direct lay onto that vehicle uh, coming down the road with their mortars, and basically they didn't hit a direct hit, but they hit it so much that it turned around and went away. So if the sign wasn't going to stop them, the mortars were going. Yes. To. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there anything else that uh, that happened kind of in, in the spot or that sticks out to you before we move on to the the second thing? And then I want to kind of come back and talk about both. So, no, it was a really quick mission. And we, I think we accomplished the mission. So the last thing that started happening was, again, because so much of this was, you know, first deployment, first everything, um, 
82 millimeter mortars started coming in on us. So like, what, what is that? Like, that's incoming mortar and artillery rounds. Um, we just had not experienced that. And in hindsight, it probably wasn't good to sit up in a four-way intersection because as a, as a, you know, for us, that makes a really good target reference point where you plan <laughs> mortars. So even though we were engaging their mortars, they had another mortar somewhere else that got set up and, and was easily able to put fire onto that road. Luckily, nobody got hurt, and we accomplished our mission. We got called that the artillery was done, pack it up, uh, and they should move back to our tactical seminary. All right, so let's fast forward now. Is, is it a few months? Yeah, so it's August. So the second engagement is on the 8th of August, okay. 2003. Before we, just, just for some context, yep. um, what's going on at, you know, a lot, of, a lot of our listeners, I think, have deployed, a lot of them have deployed to Iraq, and you experienced a very different war depending on when you were there. You personally, you know, you were there again as a company commander in 2008, and I'm sure the war was fundamentally different than what you experienced in 2003. What were you doing? Like, what, you know, on a, on a day-to-day basis, what were your missions like? Yeah, so I can't tell you what we were doing on day-to-days because it was so radically different. So after, shortly after this mission, we continued to move south because the, you know, the Kurdish forces and SF forces were moving on Kirkuk. Um, uh, we basically followed south of them and moved into Kirkuk and set up a couple K1 and K2. Capable. We set up some areas um, until we got the word that basically the regime had fell, Baghdad fell. Um, we had basically started setting up lodgements to keep moving forces down because then we had mechanized infantry coming in that we brought in, um, all of that. So we moved to Cook and basically started setting up camp instead of daily. I mean, it was just the difference in daily missions. And then you know, it started to become you know, civil civil order kind of missions where it was um, conduct a lot of conduct reconnaissance patrols so to gain information about the area, whether that was in Cook or around the airfield. A lot of battlefield cleanup is just so much was left behind of people walking away. Um, and then the, you know, all that progressed. We were giving out water. We were giving out propane. We started doing you know, kind of humanitarian aid during the day and you know, direct action uh, missions at night. Um, and it, you know, fast forward you know, more months as it started to settle in. Of course, it's own story of when we thought we were going to leave because we were briefed. My unit was briefed that this would be a 90-day rotation. <laughs> you know, the history now says that, you know, when we got told it was not going to be 90 days, CNN told us uh, when it was. That's its own story. But you know, later, we started to push out from Kukuk. We basically pushed out for other missions um, in lots of different towns and villages. And one of the ones we were directed towards was Huija, uh, which is in again, uh, outside of Kukuk. It's a good drive. Um, and we were doing a lot of what's called you know, information gathering patrols, um, whether it's different villages or towns along the route, and we just we would drive through them. Um, sometimes we had uh, uh, intelligence that drove us to missions. Sometimes we were just information gathering, even if it was you know confirming who's in charge, things so you're, like. You're driving through these villages. You're dismounting, talking to people. Yep, yep. Uh, so on this night in August, we were driving through a new town, uh, and we had driven through the new town. Actually, white light on uh, because you know, in urban areas, the lights from within the it's not, you know, we learned really quick that it doesn't make no sense to have your lights off and your nods on and driving through cities and or villages with all the lights on the street lights and all that. You, yeah. You're at the disadvantage. So we had the lights on. And we had moved out of the village, lights on, uh, which in hindsight, probably a mistake. Should have, uh, we were engaged uh, in a complex ambush from both sides. 
Um, we had roughly about nine vehicles. Again, I was in the lead of that platoon. I had my company commander with me. Um, an enemy force, unknown numbers, engaged both sides of my rear vehicle. So they targeted my rear vehicles with RPGs and uh, heavy machine guns. I was in the lead vehicle. Uh, and, you know, I often, you know, I teach, you know, we teach about the chaos of battle. And I have never experienced much chaos as I did at that time. As it, I just didn't know what was going on. That, the chaos of not knowing what's going on, um, I could hear something had happened. Um, you know, the calls were made across the radio, contact, we were all the right calls. Uh, my company commander actually screamed across the radio, turned the lights off, uh, which it should, you know, you know, I criticized myself on this night a lot. Um, I was trying to radio to the rear what was going on. Um, I couldn't get an answer, of course, because they were doing the right things and returning fire. Uh, both, that vehicle had been hit by RPGs on both sides. Um, I couldn't get anybody, so I probably made my RTO, who sits in the, behind me, have a bad night because he had made it a, his mission to always be there for me when I dismounted. He didn't know that I was throwing my hand mic down and running out of my vehicle all the way back to my trail vehicle to see what was going on. So I left him. <laughs> I left him in the vehicle. Uh, he doesn't think it's funny. Um, and I get back to the rear vehicle. The fire had, had stopped and nobody was returning fire, uh, which, which I was... Uh, you know, first I was seeing if everybody was okay, and then I was pretty upset that every, the machine guns, the, the 50 caliber machine guns at the top weren't returning fire. And they said they, didn't, they couldn't see anything, and so I, I yelled at them to return fire to known and suspected locations. Which, you know, they questioned, we were in a, you know, urban, at some point, right outside the urban part, but um, it's a battle drill. Um, it's an ambush, so you, you return fire to where you're getting fired at. What is, that? What is the battle drill when you're... Uh, what, do, what do we teach? Yeah, so we teach, in, if you're engaged in a new ambush, you return fire and assault into the ambush. It's your only chance of survival. Because um, if you just stay in, because we set up ambushes, and the ambush is probably the most successful tactics that have been used since Hannibal's time. It's to overpower, you know, a small force can overpower a much larger force if he quickly orchestrates a, an ambush, so it sets up a kill zone. And they set up a good kill zone. They targeted the rear vehicle, so that kind of negated all those other vehicles in front of it on this road, ability to kind of hone in on them. Uh, so if, if their mission wasn't total destruction of us, they had a pretty good plan and they could be a good kill zone to get that vehicle. Um, so you know, the object, you return fire and you assault into it, throw hand grenades. Uh, that's your only chance of survival. Um, that vehicle didn't do that. Now I did have a very, and he received a Valor Award for it, and one of the, so you know, I have a dismount squad, a part of this, he dismounted, and moved forward to it. Um, he was like four vehicles up, though, and moved forward to the enemy locations. Um, at that point, it was me as a platoon leader trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, the vehicle was, uh, the people inside the vehicle were rocked. Uh, you know, we were doing the right things, not moving. You, you don't do casualty back in the middle of fire. You, you know, that's something you do after. So we were moving towards the enemy. Uh, it looks like the enemy expended their ammo and then moved out at a very fast pace. So my squad requested permission for me to pursue, and I let him. Uh, so he pursued into, which it was really a wood line. Um, that was ironic in Iraq, there was a wood line. Pursued into the wood line, um, found where they had fired from, didn't find them. And then I had to pull them back after about 1,000 meters when it was basically, you know, it was outside of my control if I let him go, and he, he would be unsupported. Um, you know, we had pushed out a patrol after that to, to see if we could go where they were, because they were on, we knew they were on foot. 
knew that what had attacked us was on foot because it was just surrounded. And there were roads around it. Um, that's about it. Um, you know, we had ended up moving into that village because of this was pretty heavy contact for at this point. This is probably the biggest contact, at least my battalion had had at this point. So, you know, we had insurgent force engage us. So we we were ordered to move into that village, and we did, uh, which I found, you know. So I tell people this all the time. I teach you know, here at the military academy. I, I used to teach uh, platoon operations. I teach raid. I teach ambush. Um, and some people question the the feasibility of it. Uh, so when we moved in that village, the dismounted platoons again. I was mounted a platoon. Were ordered for about two weeks to go out and set up a platoon ambush on the same road that I was ambushed on, which I thought was, you know, uh, of course I was a platoon leader. I, I knew I knew everything. Of course, yeah. I thought it was just silly that they would do that. Like nobody's going to come back to the same place that they ambushed an American force. Well, come two weeks later, three dudes or three people with RPGs up and down their back like they're the op four for a ranger school came walking down that road and a platoon, a full platoon laid in a platoon ambush and engaged all three of them. In the same road? Same road. Oh. So when you, when you experience that ambush, do you... You, you mentioned a couple of things that you think that you guys maybe didn't do right. Do you think of it as a failure? Do you think of it as, as, as poor execution of a battle drill? Yeah. I mean, I'm self-critical, really self-critical, to, you know, in my own reflection and, you know, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? We did, you know, we AR'd the, the, the night and we could have done a lot better. But if I juxtapose the first mission, which it just felt like we had planned and I, my training had trained me um, both as an officer and as a soldier and all my soldiers up for that mission. For the ambush, I didn't feel the same. I felt I felt I failed them in preparing for that mission before we went into combat. So preparing for a platoon ambush. So you can't think of everything. Um, it just, you can tell it wasn't trained. We weren't trained uh, to respond to that. It's a level that I think we should have been. Um, I've been with other units where that, you know, the violence of action was much higher just because you know, it's incorporated into the training plan. You can't train for everything. But we were, I would have put us untrained for reactive platoon ambush while vehicle mounted, which again, some of these tactics, I mean, when we're in vehicles, we're not supposed to be fighting. Okay. Uh, we're in open skin vehicles. Um, you would have been a no-go on that lane. If I think so, yeah. the training center. So uh, you mentioned, I mean, you, it sounds like you're attributing it to a lack of preparation. Yep. And going back to the first event that you talked about, you know, there's a famous maxim that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Well, it sounds like that one actually did. Everything went with the exception of yep. almost rolling into the irrigation ditch, which you guys then extracted from a continued mission. It sounds like everything went according to plan yep. because you guys had run, yep. run through it time and time again, and maybe this was a case of... Um, Poor preparation. Is there anything else that you take from if you look at the two events sort of comparatively? Yeah. So I, on the first one, it, I, you know, I don't want to be, you know, individualist about the reflection, but I'm reflecting on my own actions. You know, I had you know right place, right time to get jump into combat, right place, right time to be a part of a, a mission against an armed enemy. I, I view it kind of on myself. Um, it was the I viewed it as a test. You know. I, some people aren't offered the opportunity to be tested. I, I was tested in the first mission, but training well, I was definitely tested in, this, in the second mission. And it's you know, what they call it, have you, your metal tested. Like I had a lot of self 
which is right, we all should do, is will I perform under fire? Um, and not just me, but all my soldiers. So the first one, we all performed under fire. It was beautiful. And the second one, we all performed under fire. Um, despite the chaos and you know, feeling of unpreparation, I've seen people freeze in combat. None, nobody froze. I, I moved back to that same field, my squad leader. So you know, just because you don't have the training, and we, you know, in your complex situations, you're not going to have the right answers, make a decision. You're a leader, make a decision. Um, they're not making decisions the worst decision you can do. And we, we kind of profess that because of the adaptability. You're not going to be trained in everything in combat. And there's a lot of adaptability going on in OAF-1. Uh, it's going on today. But that's, what we, that's why leader development is so important in our military is that we're training leaders. We're not training for that fight against that enemy. So that way in chaotic, complex situations, they make a decision. And they, they stand behind it, whether it's the right one or, or wrong one. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording, you showed me the, the green notebook that you carried in 2003 and the pages where you had notes from uh, the operations orders and uh, and what amount to essentially what, like sector sketches. And, uh, I mean, it looks like what you are expected to do if you're being graded, uh, if you're at ranger school, if you're at, at, at one of the combat training centers. Um, I think that that sort of uh, hits home the importance of, I guess, taking training seriously. Um, and I know that sounds, I think, kind of preachy to say that. But if you don't do that when you're training, I don't think that you can show up on your very first combat mission with that level of sort of calm and you know uh, confidence that that you and your unit are prepared. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And not that I wouldn't. As a former ranger instructor, now as a West Point instructor, grade this here notebook and this issues with tactics. But yeah, that we call it troop leading procedures. It's a it's a mental map to to deal with the all the stressors and the chaos of combat. They're they're mental frameworks. They're they're test you know tried and tested methodologies that help uh, in any type of combat. And the, just a muscle memory of doing that. Now I look through this book and it's just. The mission order, clear. You know, even if there's just a, a single mission statement that I, I was writing it down and ensuring my guys understood what at least the task and purpose. All those things that we we teach now, it came through in spades um, during that rotation. And then when I was later as a company commander, that, that you know, not that the army needs my validation of the way we train people, but it, it all prepared me for combat. Well, that's great. And speaking of your time as a company commander, uh, you're in you're in. Uh, Baghdad and Sadr City in 2008, and I've heard some of those stories. So we'll have to have you back for another episode of the Spirit once we get uh, a few more, a few more done. So, uh, Major Spencer, thanks very much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to the Spear. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And we also want to connect with you, and we love getting feedback. So find us on Twitter and Facebook and get in touch. All right, thanks again.